I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This is Ryan Cavanaugh, and you're listening to Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh, Rebel Radio is going down. What do you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the rebels who are shaping our culture. We talk about how they do it, why they do it, and what you can do to get a little piece of the pie for yourself. We're also the only show to bring you new music every week from our friends over at EDM.com. I'm your host, Josh Levine, and my guest this week is very special, uh, Ryan Cavanaugh. He's a bona fide movie mogul. This dude, um, it's funny, we start our interview talking about Talladega Nights because that was the only movie of his that I could think of off the top of my head. But um, but he's been a producer on not just that movie, but American Gangster, The Fighter, Don't Mess With the Zohan, Step Brothers, Pineapple Express, the list goes on and on and on. Um, he built a massive company called Relativity, which at one point was the largest independent movie studio. He also... Uh, help put the the deal together for Disney to buy Marvel. Um, it's a great story about that. That was before we had things like Iron Man and Black Panther in our lives. Um, but he was a he played a role in in making Marvel what it is today. Um, and also, I learned that he helped Netflix get its initial funding to launch its streaming service. Um, so this dude's been in it from uh, from top to bottom, and has some great stories about. Uh, the heights of success, the challenges, the beatings he's taken in the press, the, the mistakes he's made along the way. He's got some great stuff that he shares with us. Ryan is currently um, an investor and I believe the CEO of Triller, which if you haven't checked out Triller, it's a new streaming platform um, along the lines of a TikTok. So, you know, live live streaming, people, people uh, sharing whatever's going on with them. Um, but he's got some pretty interesting investors in Snoop Dogg and K 
Kendrick Lamar and all that. It's a, it's a great episode. I think you're going to love it. Let's get into it after our EDM.com track of the week. Colonel with all the time, the EDM.com track of the week. If you like that one, get over to EDM.com, check out more new music. And now let's get into the interview with Ryan Kavanaugh. Nice. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, obviously, you know, you've, you've made a lot of amazing films. Thank you. Um, I, I, you know, I don't want to read the whole list because it's uh, it'd take up our entire time. <laughs> but uh, but certainly, you know, Talladega Nights is is uh, you know one of my favorite films. I watch it. It was one of my favorite we made actually. I bet. Yeah. Um, and the list is obviously much bigger than that. And you know, you also stood out to me as I mean, you're you're a rebel. There's no question that um, you know the way you've approached the business and you've been outspoken about you know challenging the status quo and. Uh, you know, very different to, I think, a lot of your contemporaries. Um, and I think, you know, from the outside, it seems like that's paid off for you and you've also paid the price for that. And there's... Uh, and both, it, both true. Yeah, and that's kind of, you know, part oh. of the journey. So yeah. um, so let's talk about that and cool. uh, see what we can learn from you. Perfect. Um, uh, before we get into how we get started, do you remember the first record you ever bought? Um... First record I ever bought was probably, I think, it would have been Bruce Springsteen. Okay. Yep. Cool. Sec- I think second was Beastie Boys. Uh-huh. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that was the first concert I ever went to. Beasties? Nice. My parents took me when I was 13. Oh, my, wow. And my dad was 10. And my yeah. brother was 10. And my brother slept through it. And my dad said, I don't get this. They don't have any talent. They're just running around pouring beer on themselves. Really? That's uh, that's insightful for a 10-year-old. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, and so were you... Um, well, you didn't start out in entertainment. No, I started out actually in finance. Mm-hmm. And um, growing up in L.A. in a pretty conservative, you know, uh, Jewish family, like not not conservative Jewish, right? Conservative family that is Jewish. Yeah, they used to say to me, "You can do anything you want. Go be the best trash man if you want. You cannot be in entertainment. Really? Like, well, basically disown you." That almost seems the opposite of like a LA upbringing. Well, you see kind of what the entertainment industry is about when yeah. you're here, and we grew up around it, and you see kind of some of the problems with it. Sure. And I think uh, my parents looked at it as just we have family that was in the business, and yeah, you could see the. The I don't want to call it the toxicity mm-hmm. in the business, and so I think 
they 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 pushed me to shy away from it, and I did. I was I was finance all the way till probably I was about twenty four. Yeah, and I literally tripped into it by mistake. How do you mean? Um, so I ran a hedge fund starting when I was about twenty two, mm-hmm. and it was in L A. And um, most uh, obviously most of the wealth in L A. surrounds entertainment. So my investors in the fund were well known producers and directors and studio heads and actors and. Um, and we had a fairly good track record. And in 2001, when the market crashed, we were invested all in private companies. Mm. Um, the, uh, outside of entertainment. Outside, nothing to do with So you're helping entertainment people take their money. Correct. So we were yeah. invested in fintech. Okay. Um, we were invested in biotech. We were invested in um, uh, healthcare. Um, but when the market crashed, there was a you know big drive of liquidity. And I realized it was going to be very hard to continue on adventure. And I had pretty much taken everything I'd made and put it back into the fund. So mm-hmm. I owned about half the fund. Um, and I was deciding what to do because everybody was going to get diluted. Things were going from, you know, these are going to IPO to like, oh, my God, we're going to have to do a 50% down. Sure. And I actually sat down with my dad and said, what do you think uh, um, I should do? And he said, you need to take all your ownership and give it to your investors to help them from not being diluted. And I'm like, well, wow. like 24. I was like, that's everything I have. And... Um, he said, no. He's like, you're 24. Everything you have is, is your word and your yeah. reputation. So you got to do it. And so I did. And I shut down the firm. I went from living in a, you know, I guess the type of house a 24-year-old with too much money would have and uh-huh. driving a Ferrari to living in a, you know, 1800 a month rental, but um, felt good about what I did. Yeah. And a number of my investors started coming to me because Hollywood was changing dramatically at the time. This is when there was a lot of consolidation. So... You, know, you had, uh, you know, like GE by Universal, mm-hmm. and you had Viacom and News Corp. And um, anyway, they were starting to face kind of more fiscal um, structure. So producers sure. were being told, "Hey, you need to bring in co-financing, or you need to do foreign sales, or you need to, you know, they, they were they were also telling the studios, we don't care. You had two billion last year. We're mm-hmm. only giving you a billion. So there was really no one in Hollywood that understood anything about finance. Really, um, and so it started with some of my LPs. Um, XLPs coming to me saying, you know, hey, will you, will you help me do this? And mm. I'd kind of laugh and be like, I don't know anything about entertainment. Be like, well, we've been around you for a while. You, you know as much as most people. And we don't know anybody that knows about finance. And at the time, I, I was actually thinking about going and getting my, my PhD in physics. And oh, wow. So uh, it's, oh, well, we'll pay you 50 grand to write a business plan. Like, yeah. I'll take it. Sure. That's really how I ended up doing it. Wow. Yeah. Um, and what, what was the first film or like so the very first film was uh, a guy this person named Mark Canton who we're still very good friends he mm-hmm. was the um, the chairman of Columbia and of TriStar so I think he's the only person to ever have be president of two studios um, which is obviously Sony wow. and also he ran Warners for a while so very well known mm-hmm. exec and um, he was uh, trying to um, we d- he needed an M- to do an MBO of a company that he wanted to take over, which mm-hmm. he still has, called Atmosphere. And the first movie coming out of that was this little movie called um, Full of It. Okay. And I went and got it t- independently financed. I got I still remember Comerica Bank to put up a big loan against it and equity and so on and so forth. And um, uh, it turned out to be... I had nothing to do with making it. I was mm-hmm. just doing the finance side. Sure. Um, I went on set one day to... It was my first time even seeing what being on set was like. Really? And uh, I remember sitting through the first screening of it. I got invited to go, and the cha- it was New Line was releasing it. And the chairman of New Line, Bob Shea at the time, 
literally stood up in front of the entire audience at the end of it and said, who let this piece of shit movie get made? Oh, my God. I am not releasing it. No way. And I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, horrible. So I actually went to the bank, and even though I didn't personally borrow anything, um, I, I knew that I was going to be the one on the hook, even though it wasn't my movie. I didn't sure. make anything off of it. Um, so I made a deal with them, and I paid them back over time their wow. loan. Uh, paid back the equity investors out of my pocket there alone. And that was my first experience with a movie. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, never got released. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the movie business is, is infamous, as is the music business, for, like, taking outsiders' money and not treating them kindly. Well, to this day, um, the guy who I did that with, Jared Underwood, who now runs a bit, one of the larger um, finance companies in Hollywood called Aperture. Yeah. Um, we work together because I think he said he's never had anybody, you know, every deal we've ever done, every loan's gotten repaid. And that's mm -hmm. important to us as, you know, a company to make sure that sure. even in bad times, you know, going through Chapter 11, that we make sure all debt gets paid. Yeah. Unless it's hostile, obviously. Sure. Different story. Yeah. Um, so... You, there, you, there's this so from what I understand you kind of came up with this different way of looking at film finance um, and you know I, I think that's interesting again you know music movies sort of the same thing this idea this narrative that the product speaks for itself that a great film or a great artist is going to find a way um, you know my experience in working with brands of all sorts is that companies fail because they're undercapitalized uh, more than any other reason um, meaning that they were overly optimistic about how the product was going to sell itself yep um, and so you seem to take have taken a different approach and yeah so talk about that a little bit I think early on um, you know well it started with really my my second and my first real movie when I was involved in producing it was a movie called 300 So wait, I'm sorry to interrupt. After that first one, like, was there a hesitation? Or you're like, am I, am I really going to keep doing this? No, because I saw the, 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 I was learning the business. Okay. So I saw kind of the flaw, I think, in it. Okay. And, um, or at least what I perceived to so be the flaw. So you were able to take that lesson. Yeah. I took yeah. the lesson. It was expensive. It, it hurt. Um, yeah. But it was akin to going and getting an MBA in, in you know, in entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, and so the second film, interesting enough, was 300. And... We took it to every studio, and every studio uh, rejected it. Um, I still remember at the time the head, very well-known head of a studio, um, uh, of, at the time Warner Brothers, actually sat in the room and said, let me get this straight. You guys want to make an R-rated movie that looks kind of like a comic. It's really bloody. It's a sword and sandal movie with a guy nobody knows whose last movie was behind a mask. He's yeah. basically running around in his underwear for $60 million. Yeah. And we were like, yeah, basically. <laughs> um, so we got a, uh, I actually was at the time working closely with Merrill Lynch on another deal and um, a hedge fund in Milwaukee uh, on another deal. And so we went to the hedge fund and they, they uh, financed the movie and that was 300. Yeah. And so from that, I kind of learned, you know, that the, this whole black box that Hollywood claims to have for a hundred years is is total bullshit, mm -hmm. and um, and that there was a lot of room for change in that system, 
and the system was so close-knit because a lot like the music business if you don't have one of the five studios as a partner you're basically not in the business right so the five studios work closely with a couple of agencies work closely with a couple of management companies and they keep for the last hundred years anybody out mm -hmm. and, and kind of create the illusion that that there's this special system um, and so that really led to um, really reanalyzing the business um, and at the same time a company called Marvel which was relatively unknown really? was just come out of bankruptcy um, mm -hmm. and uh, something called the toy company bought it out of bankruptcy um, and uh, it was a, a public entity but pretty small and they had licensed Spider-Man to Sony and they licensed Hulk to um, Universal and they licensed Daredevil to um, sorry uh, Daredevil and um, X-Men to Fox mm -hmm. and Sony was making a billion dollars on Spider-Man and they were making like a couple million bucks so they went out and were trying to figure out how do we make our own movies and make our own IP yeah. problem was that they had promised their shareholders when they did the bought the company out of bankruptcy they wouldn't be putting any money into movies so every bank had said it's impossible mm -hmm. we went out and struck came up with a really a structured finance deal that was traditional structured finance that Hollywood hadn't seen before um, of how to uh, securitize the intellectual property mm. and then borrow against that and um, it took me a year um, actually the, the board at first was like this is impossible why, why would no any bank wouldn't bring this up and I did it all for if, if we close I'll get ownership in Marvel if we don't I get nothing yeah and um, it took us a year but we got Merrill Lynch to underwrite 680 million dollars and every movie starting with um, Iron Man all the way through to Black Panther were set by date in that deal Wow Rebel Radio is brought to you by HoneyBook. You know, HoneyBook's probably the perfect sponsor for this show. If you know me, you know I've had a small business, Rebel Radio, now for 20 years. And so I've learned a lot of the challenges uh, that come with running uh, any type of creative company. The main one being there's just always too much to do. If you're a small business owner, you're handling the administration work, the creative work, the stuff you love, the stuff you don't love, it all has to get done. HoneyBook is an all-in-one business management platform for creative businesses specifically that lets you streamline your process and manage all of that stuff in one place. Invoices, contracts, proposals, uh, calendar management. It lets you do more faster so that you can focus on the stuff you really want to do. It will definitely save you time. So we've partnered with HoneyBook.com to offer Rebel Radio listeners 50% off the first year of HoneyBook with the promo code REBEL. Get started at HoneyBook.com today and use the promo code REBEL for 50% off your first year. Again, that's HoneyBook.com, promo code REBEL. And so that really led, opened up to, it was purely financial. The mm -hmm. transaction was about how do you run models? How do you make it, you know, this industry looks, acts, breathes, and, and, and feels like any other industry that typical structured finance is done within Wall Street. Mm -hmm. But film had such a bad name for a different reason that um, it was about how do I now take this and make it into a broad system slash model that I can go visit Wall Street and actually show them um, that this is the same business as any other business if done right mm -hmm. and that the dirty word movies comes from a whole for a whole different reason sure. and that's what we did um, because after we did Marvel the, the big studios then reached out and started saying we need 
capital and the hole was you know $20 billion. So mm -hmm. it was clearly only going to come from one place, which was Wall Street. Sure. And so that's when the system started getting built. And we started really creating a, a new way of looking at, at movies purely from a financial perspective. Yeah, so I've seen you talk about, um, you know, when, when we talk about performance in movies, we talk about box office, yep. right? And, uh, you know, it's, it's maybe the only business, maybe, I don't know, but where um, they're not talking about profitability. I've seen you be really critical of that. And I think, you know, that's a little crazy, right? Like you could make $100 million on a film that loses $20 million and it's still kind of considered a hit because it made $100 million. It's, it's part of the Hollywood fallacy that they, they've created and perfected and the press um, helps them. Yeah. So because, you know, what, call it 80 years ago, 70 years ago, you had box office. They mm -hmm. were able to keep the system such that um, they worked with the press and continued to keep this closed-knit system so that they could control the at least allure vision of um, or perception of what is success. And sure. as we all know, like you just said, it 99.9% .9 of people say, oh, do you see the box office, right? right. And that's today maybe 25% of the actual pie. Sure. And what happens is because these studios are much older and they have large libraries that throw off billions of dollars of cash flow, the under gap accounting, um, when a movie comes out, they don't have to show the public, and they don't show the public any movie's profitability because it's considered to be what what an accountant called de minimis, meaning it's something that is just folded up, and you don't have to show the detail. So Crazy. you cannot go find the profitability of any movie if you're uh, um, not in the studio. Wow. Um, and they purposely put. First of all, they they can kind of tell anybody it's whatever budget they want it to be, mm -hmm. and then they promote, hey, look at how big this box office was, we made money. Um, and that was really the first kind of looking at the system going, this is just broken. Um, and realizing that it was very venture capital, it was like 20% of, maybe 15% of movies were making a profit, mm -hmm. the rest were losing. Right. Um, and because the studios needed capital and needed us to bring it from Wall Street, they had to give us access to their ultimates. And so that's when I started building a model to look at like how does this actually fare and yeah. does, how does it how do you make it how can you finance it like other industries and that's when we realized you know that there was what the perception was not the reality um, and and actually started shifting the model so how does it work for people that don't know anything like what how do you how do you explain the model um, our model or their model no yours <laughs> our model so we really, the easiest way to explain it is that the studios are in the world of venture capital. So mm -hmm. they're swinging for the fences every time. They're going to lose on, you know, a majority of their movies like 80% and, you know, 15-20% they'll make a profit and they hope that it's a big enough success that it's a really big profit and sure. so they end up with a 8 to 15% internal rate of return, which mm -hmm. um, uh, basically means that you make 8 to 15% on your money a year. Um, and in a bad year it's less, good year can be a little more, but yeah. For taking that kind of risk, it's a, it's a pretty low return if you want to take that kind of risk. Sure. So what we were able to do is we created, um, we really we call it a, a real estate system. So we took it and said, you know, you could shift this to real estate risk and get the same type of IRR. Hmm. Meaning in real estate, it's much more stable and collateralized. So 
we kind of look at movies like a building. Um, and so if we're going to make a movie, um, we kind of pick the property. We know mm -hmm. where we're going to buy. We know what the building's going to look like. But before we actually start it, we're going to go out and make sure that we can sell or lease 75% of that building so that our risk is limited to 25%. Sure. Um, so instead of on you know, a $50 million movie having $50 million of risk, we're going to take it down to $15 million of risk. Yeah. And the hope is that um, when we're done, that, it's that, that kind of 25% is now going to be worth more because it's finished and complete and we've done a good job. If it's not worth more, worst case, maybe we'll lose a couple million dollars. Mm -hmm. So we did that by means of creating what we call output deals. So in every country, about 130, 140 countries, there's five or six distributors that are competing with the studios. They're the local distributors. They're maybe worth 100, 200 million dollars. And they, in, in the entire world, U.S. product is always number one, except for in India. And so they need a fair amount of U.S. film in order to keep their, their deals with the theaters, with okay. the the channels with the distributors, if they don't have US product, they end up getting, really, they're in a really bad position. So they, before us, were going to the Cannes Film Festival and all these places and buying, I'll call what B films, films that the studios passed on. Mm -hmm. So we went to them and said, hey, you guys, you want A films, right? You want films with big movie stars that yeah. compete with the studios. So we're gonna enter into deals with you where you're gonna buy our product um, on an output basis for a percentage of the budget. And so we'd start a movie, and we'd know that at least 75% of the budget was covered. That's what we call it real estate. Nice. And so on a $50 million movie, the studios would have to do, call it, you know, $80, $90 million to even break even or mm -hmm. more in domestic box. We were doing, if we did 30, 40 million, we were in a profit. Now the difference is, if we did 200 million, you know, we would give You're up away a lot of the upside. Yeah. But about 86% of our movies made a profit. Yeah. Um, and we were always going for singles still. We always go for singles and doubles. It's, you know, if we can, if most of our movies can do between, you know, 50 and 80 million bucks or 40 and 80 million bucks, we're making over an 18% internal rate of return and we're doing it with a lot less risk. And yes. so we spent a lot of time fighting the press because the press would be like, oh, look, their movie only did $40 million. And right. they'd be like, yeah, we're so excited. And they'd be like, yeah. no, you can't be. That's terrible. We'd obviously say, well, you can write whatever you want, right. but we made money and we're happy. Yeah. So that that was really the shift in the system. And um, shockingly, you know, well, the studios can't do it because yeah. they have they they went out and they have, you know, distribution and marketing in every country. So mm -hmm. they they would have to admit to their parent companies that their system is broken and, and a lot of jobs would be lost and sure. you know, a lot of high paid people would not be paid as much. I mean, that seems to be a challenge in so many industries, right, is you have you have so much invested in the way things are that, you know, even when you realize that there's a flaw in that, you're kind of stuck. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I um, there's a statistic that I heard a number of years back that was very interesting, which is that the average S&P company only stays in the S&P for seven years. Right. And so that's clearly, you know, you go to the top, and there's clearly a reason why. Yeah. Obviously, they stop innovating. Right. And so um, for us, you know, just in general, we try to stay nimble mm -hmm. and we don't have all the answers. And we know that um, we're willing to be going down a path today. And if tomorrow something looks better, we will hard right into that path. Yeah. Um, so talk about that a little bit uh, as far as how you build that into a culture, right? Because you built Relativity into, you know, a pretty big company. 
I think we were the biggest mini major. We were bigger than Lionsgate. Yeah. Um, our, we were. We, we had an IPO on the table at about ten billion in our last run. Before that was two billion. Yeah. So how do you take that? Um, you know, it's one thing to sit in a room by yourself or with a couple of partners and go, "We're going to be nimble. We're going to like innovate." You, you know, constantly challenge ourselves. But then when there's multiple offices and hundreds of people and like, how do you, how were you able to keep that spirit alive? So there's a couple things. One, you know, the bigger you get, the harder it is. Yeah. And as we grew into, you know, we, we like our sports um, agency, obviously we built, we built to the second largest sports agency and then that had its own board directors and its own management team. Sure. So then getting over and continuing that culture and effectively what is started as a company that was one office right next door to my office that then right. had its completely on floor. Yeah. You know, it, again, it gets more and more difficult. Same thing with music, TV started in my office and mm-hmm. we built it up to, we had 40 series on the air. It was had its own and lot in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but I think what we tried to do is we'd always we'd have a lot of retreats um, and not like the corporate retreats you hear about like you know the big fortune 100 companies make you like fall back in people's arms you know <laughs> right all that crap it was actually retreats where um, really anybody who was on a management level we really tried to instill that um, you know our saying was and still is um, it's okay to try and f- it's okay to try something and fail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not okay to fail to try. And yeah. we would anybody that kind of fell into that very like corporate world, we would just um, generally try and part ways with them and just say that's you know not doesn't sure. fit into our culture. Yeah. It's hard because politics come into play a lot, and people don't want to upset the balance. And the people who have great ideas, if their boss you know want, doesn't want them to have it, they get scared. So. You know, it was also making sure that I had a lot of touch points um, with, with, with people, not just, you know, on a uh, president level, but yeah. that people knew my office was open at any time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that, that, was, that was a challenge. And the more you, you grow and the more you spin off different sectors, you know, the harder that is. Yeah. Um, but I think it's about picking the right managers. It's going back to the Marvel deal and the, kind of the beginning of the company. Was there a moment when you realized you'd made it? Well, I think, so the Marvel deal was an interesting one, and that probably closing that was when I realized, I don't know if the word made it is the right word, because it's kind of like, you know, for me, it was, it's about innovating, and it was mm-hmm. always like, what's next, sure. right? So, um, but closing Marvel was a really big deal, because I sat in front of every banker you could possibly imagine, and got laughed out of the room, Yeah, where people would literally say, you know, are you joking me? You think that Iron Man is going to be what Spider-Man is? I've never heard of Iron Man. Wow. You think that Ant-Man, anybody's going to watch? You think anybody outside of America is going to see Captain America? Yeah. You think that you can't have a black superhero on, sure. on Black Panther? And literally, I got laughed out of every room. I fight the world. I fight you. I fight myself. I fight God. Just tell me how many burdens left. I fight pain and hurricanes. Today I wept. I'm trying to fight back tears. Um, on my basically being told all the good IPs taken and gone and this is never going to work. And so, you know, having done that for a year um, and eventually closing the deal and then closing the deal with Paramount, um, I think that that really said to me, okay, and that's really why I stayed in the industry was there is so much room for change here because people are stuck and they're stuck in an old way of thinking. And the fact that we pulled that off, it got name structured 
finance deal of the year on Wall Street, yeah. but also that in Hollywood it was like, how did that happen? And yeah. then every studio started calling, going, if you could do that for them, imagine right. what you could do for us. So when you you get laughed out of a couple rooms, like a lot of people would give up or would say, like, you know, obviously this isn't for me or I'm not doing it right or like, where does the you know, I guess we call it chutzpah, right? Like, where, sure. where, where does it come from to keep banging your head against the wall in the face of that? A couple things. I think, one, um, when I start facing that is when I know I'm on to something. Okay. Because, as you, we talked about it earlier, um, the entertainment industry in general, music, film, um, you know, even technology, short-form media now, um, it becomes a industry with a lot of barriers around it and if you start challenging those barriers yeah you start getting shut down fast and yeah. you can see the harder they fight and the more they're trying to shut you down the more you're on to something that's you know i think people today use the word innovation a lot but you know back then it was kind of you know wasn't that big of a word sure. um yeah you know it's innovation and so the more that people kind of laughed and fought the more it was like okay this is th they're they're not laughing it's like there's a saying that, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the ignore you part is like, okay, but when they start laughing at you, you know that you're in something that eventually they're going to fight because yeah. you're, you're, you're onto something they don't want you to have. Second piece is that my, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, so anytime I faced any kind of like, you know, hurdle to me, I'm like, okay. My grandparents were yeah. in camps, didn't have a childhood, were, you know, watched their families be killed. Sure. And, you know, this is nothing. I'm yeah, like, you they, know, they I'm, I'm still living a great life. And, right. you know, so, okay, a bank laughed me out of the room. Like, so what? Yeah. Um, so I think that was always, and still to this day, when uh, when we get laughed at, you know, I actually had um, the CEO, or, uh, the chief content officer of Netflix, uh, Ted Sarandos. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty funny story. And he's probably the most, he's more known, I think, than Reed Hastings, just because yeah. he's the guy that's out there. So, you know, we basically, we not basically, we did create Netflix SVOD um, system in 2010. They were just a mail-order DVD company. Right. Yeah. We basically helped write their their, their um, entire SVOD paper and mm. rewrote it for Morgan Stanley and a whole, published in 2010. No, none of the studios would work with him. In fact, all the press was, like, shitting on us and, uh, you know, who was, the, can't believe Relativity made a deal with this crappy DVD company, Netflix, and Crazy. I think Warner Brothers, HBO, when they asked them about it and said, are they concerned? They said, no, Netflix is a fly on our ass. I think that was the exact quote. But um, in 2014, I gave the keynote at MIPCOM mm -hmm. and talked about how we were taking our TV, uh, our, our movies, and using the data we were getting on movies and turning them into TV shows because mm -hmm. we had so much data that we knew it was more than anybody ever had on a TV show. And I gave a really long talk on that. And I remember I had lunch about two weeks later with Ted Sarandos. And he literally looked at me. He's like, by the way, your idea of taking movies and turning TV shows is shit. And now if you look at Netflix, like three <laughs> yeah, quarters of their TV programming show. is that. Well, it's, I mean, that's so funny. And uh, it's, you know, I noticed that on Netflix recently. And I was like, well, yeah, of course, because they don't need people to watch something once. Right. They need people to tune in, you know, not nightly basis. Well, it's also, you could take a movie franchise and, and you, when you test a movie, we, we're talking to the audience a lot. We know what right. they liked, we know what they didn't like, we know what failed. We, know what, we took Catfish, which is the very, you can, you'll see it's the very first movie turned into um, TV, which was 
relatively failed movie, um, yeah. but we saw that there was this specific audience that mm. was extremely passionate about it, and the specific audience happened to be like 15 to 25, and um, uh, both males and females. And so we looked and said, hey, that's MTV. Yeah. And sure. put, it's the, been the most popular show on MTV ever. It's still yeah. running, I think, in season nine or ten now. And it's, the word catfish has now become part of, like, you know, social zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, so that that became a pretty, to me, it was just easy. We took Limitless, turned into a TV show on CBS that did very well. Yeah. Um, and uh, and now I see it on, it's, you know, it's everywhere, and it's kind of funny. Sure. Same thing just happened, I think, yesterday. I saw Warner Brothers made an announcement said, we're going to use AI, financial AI, to start deciding on movies. Like it was a big deal. Sure. And actually, I got an email from someone who worked for me, <clears throat> still works for me, and at Relativity wrote, um, "Didn't we announce this ten years ago?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. So yeah, yeah. Um, so all your contemporaries kind of missed this, right? Like, um, and like I said, you know, they laughed at you, etc. They fought you. Um, how do you know then you know 10 years later or however long you become one of those guys yep so and you get pitched a lot of bad ideas yep um, how do you avoid the same mistake they were making well it, it's interesting because I started to make the same mistake yeah um, I thought I wasn't right and, and I thought I was being much more sure um, open but you know I there's a lot of um, there was a lot of good things that, w- that we were doing. I think that we we're looking forward, and we we're always trying to innovate and always trying to change. But we set up our own system, and then it's like, okay, we have to, you know, work within the system. Yeah. And um, I think that uh, when we got to a certain size, like we were, you know, eye on the prize, which was, you know, get the company public. Mm-hmm. And I actually got very defocused from what you know, I love to do, which was, you know. How do we keep changing and innovating? Right. And got stuck. Yeah, public companies aren't. Yeah. They're not really set up for that. No, I was traveling 278 days a year. Yeah. And I was sitting in, you know, mostly, you know, suits and boardrooms with hedge funds and investment right. funds, talking banks, talking about our IPOs and yeah. financing structures and kind of um, other people were running the company. So mm-hmm. um, as much as I would be pitching in the room, this is what we stand for, you know, when you kind of leave the structure which I was doing because I was off focusing on that it, it starts to get very complacent I guess is the word yeah. um, and so um, I, I think that for me the biggest mistake I mean I made a lot of mistakes but a big mistake there was literally letting myself keep that defocused I didn't have to get on that plane 278 days a year I yeah. did it because I was so focused on you know at the time we were we were we had higher box office than Lionsgate and higher than DreamWorks and we were half the size of Universal and so mm-hmm. I was like we have a chance at like being the biggest mm-hmm. and you know the only way to, to get to that step was to be public because of the amount of capital that was required right um, and instead I should have probably stepped back and went you know well, I don't need to be the biggest sure. I just need to keep you know effectuating change right and I think uh, you know it's it's a it's a good lesson and you can follow I, I literally thought I was the antithesis of it and I was it yeah so you know I've seen you talk about mistakes um, I think at one point you called your old self an asshole yeah I was, I was um, definitely a little bit of an asshole for a while what when you think back about that what stings the most 
Oh, God. Um, what's things the most about the way that I was or the way that the things that happened? <laughs> Just, a, you know, a decision you made or a, or a you know, a, a, a choice that, you know, that you're not going to make again or you're going to try to avoid. I think, um, well, one was, was that there's, that there's two. One, one, I think, is something that was done to me. The other is what I did. So one is that I, I trusted a lot of people around me, especially so people who were very tied to me in business. I trusted yeah very heavily and I embraced them as like I actually put them on a higher kind of standard than even my own family you mm -hmm. know um, like having them sign the ketubah at my wedding mm -hmm. and thought of them as brothers and quickly later learned that you know they were there purely for business reasons and sure. I accepted them in a very different way um, and that um, the big mistake that I really regret so they did that and made them more important than my own family and mm -hmm. my own real friends. Mm -hmm. um, and so I look back and go, I can't believe, you know, and then when I say I was an asshole, I, I, I was an asshole to the real people. Like, mm -hmm. I was, you know, too busy and too myopic. Um, I looked at it, these are my, my brothers, these are my best friends, and we're yeah. in business together, and we do everything together, and we travel together, but, you know, they weren't my friends. They were there because... You know, I was a good source of income for them, and yeah. there was a lot of upside. And when they saw the opportunity at, at my, at even harm to me to make more money, they took it in two seconds. Sure. Whereas my real friends and family were the ones who were there when I was like, "Oh, shit's going down." Or, mm -hmm. You know, they they were actually s sitting side by side with me. So yeah, you know, yeah. Um, so how do you how do you apply that going forward? And, uh, you know, I want to talk about the future because you have you have some exciting new businesses. Um, but you know, but when you you you've learned a lot, it sounds like uh, both good and bad. Yep. And so, um, but I always think it's an interesting. You know, it's it's easy to intellectualize what we've learned. Yep. And I'm you know I try to write down these lessons and whatever. But then sometimes you find yourself in a situation and you know instinct kicks in and whatever um so how do you protect yourself from the mistakes of the past um so one i kind of have this no asshole rule cool. <laughs> which is yeah. anybody that starts getting you know kind of big for their britches in in the company um or around us is just someone i don't want to work with yeah. um and you know we 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 turned out a lot of opportunities it could be very um financially successful but just because it's we it's not people we want to work with so mm -hmm. i don't work with big hedge funds i don't work with the big um kind of structured um institutions that are very much of hey well, we're going to invest in you and be your friend but in three years if you haven't you know right. found the exit then we're going to turn against you and right. try and crush you mm -hmm. um so we turned down a lot of i'll say ability to grow really fast um by turning down those, that type of capital and just growing it a little slower and doing mm -hmm. it with the right partners and the right people. Um, in terms of management, it's making sure that the people around are really passionate about what they do, passionate about the company and are just real people. They're not there just for a paycheck. Right. Um, and then on a personal level, you know, I kind of stay under the radar a lot, um, obviously doing this podcast, but sure. um, I don't really do much media, I think. Um, you know, back in the relativity days, it was like weekly. There was, yeah. you know, some kind of front cover or, sure. you know, interview or Bloomberg or, you know, CNBC or whatever. Um, and uh, I've learned that's just for me, not, not a life I want. So um, 
I kind of just stay focused on on you know what we want to build and and we build it slower. Um, so so t- tell me why. Like talk about because yeah, I mean we can Google you and there's you know tons of interviews and uh, you know red carpets and all that pops up and um, I'm sure there's you know sounds like there's both upside and downside to that. Yeah. Um, but so so in terms of where you're at now, kind of how do you think about your public image and um, you know I hate to use the word like personal brand, but um, where where are you at now with that? Well, I hope to. I think one of the things that happened with Relativity is because when it started, it was Ryan Kavanaugh's Relativity, and then when it right. grew, it was Ryan Kavanaugh's Relativity. There's not really wasn't really another studio that I know of. Um, it had a person tied to it so much, um, and so I think on the way up, you know, it was like the the press and people around had a thank you had a. Um, uh, the the ability to attach a face to sure. um, success of a company, yeah. so that was good, and which is important, right? I mean, yeah. you know, we think about, you know, we think about Jeff Bezos, we think about Mark Zuckerberg, we sure, like, it's important. But what I think the difference is that um, Amazon as a company, um, you know, Facebook as a company. They, they, they stand alone. You don't yeah. automatically think of Bezos. You don't automatically think of Zuckerberg. When you Fair think about, like, yeah, who's running and who started, okay. The, I kind of made the mistake of relativity wasn't out there as a word without Ryan Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time around that and talking about... I, my, the, also, the mistake I made is instead of just doing it, I was talking about it. And what I mean talking right. about it is I'd sit up there and give speech after speech about how broken and how bad all everybody else <laughs> in the industry was, right? Right. So... It was a little bit Trump-esque, I guess. I, would, I, would, I wasn't just doing it, but I was poking the bear the whole time, right? Yeah. Um, so I'd get up, and get, when I, I gave the keynote at CES, or when I gave the keynote at Mick Palmer, or Variety Summit, I would just literally be like, studio, uh, milking conference studios are, are all dead. Here's why. They're doing mm-hmm. it wrong. And so I think, um, A, I was very public about it, um, and obviously that probably didn't make other studios very happy. Sure. And B, um, you know, I was kind of just putting myself out there. So as we were growing, it was great. Like, oh yeah, Ryan Cowden relatively did this. They broke this. They did that. They now have the largest sports agency and largest television and both. But um, when we had a hostile takeover attempt, it was very easy. I effectively handed um, very powerful hedge funds with unlimited budgets. Yeah. When they wanted to attack, I handed them the formula to attack, which is. It's, there's no relativity without Ron Kiva's name, so right. you can go out and create a, a, a slander campaign or a press campaign, if you will, um, and you could pay. It's very easy to go pay a firm. They paid this firm, Rubenstein. For them, a couple hundred thousand dollars is, a month is nothing. Yeah. And go, go, go use your relationships to just get as much negative publicity out there about Ryan Kavanaugh, which then, because yeah. Ryan Kavanaugh's relativity. Sure. It wouldn't have worked if I had let relativity stand alone. Yeah. So going forward, the businesses, I, I don't really put my name on them. I mean, I'll talk about them that I'm involved, mm-hmm. but you won't see, you know, Ryan Kavanaugh's Triller or right. you know, Ryan Kavanaugh's Entertainment Stock Exchange. You'll, yeah. It's just the Entertainment Stock Exchange, Triller. And yeah, people know that I'm the founder probably, um, you know, or, or principal, but uh, it's not press we do isn't like that's not the headline mm-hmm. it was always the headline before that right. Ryan Kavanaugh yeah, sure. so 
now having kids, you know, my hope is that by the time they're 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 on the internet, there's not really not much to find on me. It's kind of like, you know, he's a business. Guy. I don't know if we'll have an internet by then. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, that's so funny. If you're enjoying this one, uh, let's go back in the Rebel Radio archives. You can check out my interview with another great entrepreneur, Brent Bushnell. He's the founder of Two Bit Circus. If you live in LA, you've probably seen it, but he's he's kind of reinventing the amusement park bringing high-tech and low-tech together. Uh, there's one downtown. It's their first location. I have a feeling we're going to start seeing locations all over the country soon, maybe around the world. That's a good interview if you want to spend a little more time with Rebel Radio. So, yeah, let's talk about trailer, and, uh, you know, I want to talk about some of the new stuff you're doing, but... Um, sure. Um, I guess my, my first question is... is um, what are you taking in terms of lessons from the entertainment business as you move into tech and, and some of the other stuff? So the interesting thing is that, um, you know, I've been in tech in the past, obviously. Um, this is a part of the world that I've kept very, on a purpose, I don't know why I just stayed quiet, but a lot of the businesses we built along the way just kind of took a, a, a public backseat mm -hmm. to the size of relativity. But, um, but uh, like, we just sold a company at the end of last year that I founded in 1999 in a garage um, that was FinTech. It, it was basically PayPal before PayPal. Oh, um, wow. And uh, we, we, we sold it for $400 million last year. We, um, uh, my, my dad started a company called Juno that I was the seed investor in, and um, it was the largest biotech IPO of 2014. And then wow. sold 2016 for $10 billion. So we've had uh, multiple of those. Um, and so I had a lot of that experience. I just, you know, it just wasn't out there because okay. it's not as sexy, sure. you know, in the press. So in terms of like now principally in um, something like a, a, a tech and music trailer, I mean, I'm bringing in, I think, you know, the lessons of how to use publicity in a good way mm -hmm. um, and trying to avoid the publicity in the bad way. Um, and obviously I've, I've culminated a lot of, I think, really good relationships in entertainment and there really is a, the line has gotten so blurred between tech media entertainment all kinds of content music film long form short form it's all kind of mushing together right absolutely and um to me the, the writing on the wall is very when i look at it i see the world where it's going to be in a couple of years and um maybe i'm wrong but um but so using those relationships. What um, do you see? Um, I mean, a lot of people are talking about who's going to be the winner, and you know, Disney's got it, you know, obviously it's 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 a streaming app and mm -hmm. AT and T and Netflix and everybody's like, who's going to be the winner? Who's going to be the winner? And to me, it's it's no different than how television has always been. So you, know, you started, you had a box had a couple channels on it. You had to get up and click that little thing right. and change the channels. And I remember. Eventually then, you know, the world changed when, you know, satellite came in and you had DirecTV and yeah. you, know, you had access to 500 channels, but you had to pick the ones you wanted and you, you paid more for some and you didn't have to pay for others. Um, and, you know, then obviously Netflix popped up and so you had both TV and then you were paying for this kind of on-demand service. Um, but, as as cord cutting has happened and as um, 
you know, more and more of these pop up. It's it's just no different. I mean, yeah, you have the ability to watch it on you know a phone mm -hmm. or a tablet, but you know, television also was ra just changed just as radically over the last fifty years as as television and phone. I Meaning, sure. With this box TV that you could barely turn yeah. going to a television that you could carry anywhere, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so I look at a phone or tablet just as a smaller version. But um, but when you look at programming, right? So before a Comcast, an AT&T, uh, um, DirecTV, so you needed them in order to program because they were bringing a signal to your house. Mm -hmm. um, and so you paid them for access to that. And then you told them through them, I also want access to these following things. So right. whether it was HBO for nineteen dollars, or you know, um, you know, uh, a Sports Center for twenty dollars. Now the only difference I see is that you don't need um, uh, the Comcast anymore. You don't need the uh, AT and T uh, or, or called DirecTV anymore, but you do need. The parent companies, mm -hmm. which are the exact same companies, because they're the ones that are actually delivering you the bandwidth, the speed to actually watch that. So instead of having this this kind of I'll call it pit stop of of a box that right. you're programming, um, and then obviously only being able to watch what's on you know kind of that specific time, you've just got rid of the box. Now mm -hmm. you're paying for the bandwidth mm -hmm. to the same party. And you're deciding what channels you want to pay for. Do I want to pay for Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and you know um, uh, Disney and you know pretty much everybody now has their right. own app. So yeah. you're just programming your own box basically. And I don't see it as any different than it's been since it started. Uh, can I tell you what I think is different? Mm -hmm. um, two things. And one, you'll you'll tell me I'm wrong because because it's not really, really my area of expertise, but I think based on what you were talking about earlier in terms of the financial model, where these companies are are only survive because of having big right. hits right. that pay for everything else. Right. And I think, you know, I always think back to, you know, I'm of the age where, like, you know, Norman Lear changed the world for us, right? Sure. Because all in the family, you know, and I, I remember reading that at one point a third of all Americans watched Archie Bunker Oh, sure. On a weekly basis, right? Absolutely. And, you know, that's his, uh, and he's like the most unlikely, you know, movie star, right? There is. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, that's this just massive concentration of uh, attention in, in one place. Right. And I, so, you know, and now there's no show. We have bigger franchises, right? Mm -hmm. Because of all these different, because the world's bigger. But, mm -hmm. but there is no show that demands an, as much of anyone's attention as as those did, right? And um, you know, I, I think you're right, but I also think that you know the shift has been that. So if you think back to call, call it all the filming, you know, those days, movies weren't running on TV, and right. you also so the difference in some of the, the talks I used to give is that you know when consumers have the ability to pick what they want, when they want, how they want it, they're going to decide. And, you know, <coughs> they didn't have that opportunity when that no, was Oh, absolutely. So I think today, what, you know, again, I just replace, um, and when I say things haven't changed, I guess what I mean is I'm replacing um, 
maybe a show with more of like a concept. Sure. And so the fact that you know I can watch any Marvel movie at pretty much any time. Yeah. Right. So I'd say probably the same amount of people that were watching Archie Bunker, maybe even more, are watching. You know, over the uh, you know the beginning period of time that they're showing, are watching you know the new Iron Man or the new Captain America on TV, and that's you know kind of um, I think when I say you're replacing your channel, it's okay. Before you only had limited shows to watch. Sure. Now you have basically unlimited real estate. Um, so that that yeah. that is a big difference. But I also look at it as much the same, which is okay. Everybody watched what they could watch, mm-hmm. and that happened to be what they liked more than anything and out of what was available right and so now that you've got a lot more available um, people are focusing in and 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 that's going to be what comes to the top Um, yeah I guess what I guess what I'm saying and and you know probably to your benefit like the it seems like the existing financial structures of the big companies are not really set up to have people's attention diffused in the way that it was that they were really based on big stars big hits big franchises Mm -hmm that make just tons of money and I think you know we're we're sort of seeing that era kind of come to an end in weird ways we're seeing it all over I think so one um, I I think that in the future in the near future I don't see a difference between short form and long form and so when I see places like Quibi for example it's going to come out and they've spent a billion dollars and all in short form and you have you know um Obviously, Netflix that's that's doing you know film television. You have um, people that are doing you know Hulu, which is focusing on television. I just think it's all the same mm-hmm. to our the generation, you know, our kids. It so, is, and even you know, you know Triller and TikTok, and you know you, you know my son watches YouTube. Yeah, I mean I use YouTube, but he doesn't think of it as any different from TV. No, it's the same thing. He watches it on the TV, or my son does the same thing. Yeah. He'll say, "I want to you know I want to watch you know." Ryan's toys, like right. to him, that's no different than you know. The, the, Absolutely. Then, then I want to watch uh, Spider Man, but so I, I kind of look at all these launches that are happening, where it's like, hey, I'm going to launch Quibi, a short form, right. a platform specifically dedicated to short form entertainment content, and that's all we're going to do because we think there's a market for that. I mean, yeah, there's a market for it, but I think that it's all going to be one, like you know, sure. and I don't think any. When somebody defines themselves purely as like, this is what we're doing and all we're doing, right. um, that's where I see, I, I kind of feel like there's, there's, they're making a mistake. So, um, you know, like Quibi, I think, great, they can start with short form content. And I'm sure, you know, anything Jeffrey does is successful. So I'm sure mm-hmm. it'll be successful. But um, at the same time, it's like, you know, if you want to start a new platform and start with that and making it your kind of way to start building it, fine, say that's what you're doing. But, um, I, I just kind of see that it's all going to be one and the same, and it's all going to be programmed from the same place. Um, and you're going to kind of pick your channels. So here's my short-form channels, here's my long-form channels. Sure. And, you know, um, I think Roku probably is the group that has it most right, mm. more than anybody. And I actually used to say that back in every speech I gave 2012, 13, back when they were you know, 500, 400, 300 million dollar company, nobody yeah. even had heard of them. Um, and they haven't veered from their business model, which mm. is great. So the other thing I, I think is a big challenge, and this is not, I don't have any science to back it up other than um, what I've, the studies I've read about just sort of too much choice, right? Um, that, 
you know, I, I feel like in just my own experience, right, like there's more good TV slash movies. Like there's more good stuff on my screen than I will ever have time to watch. And it's sort of less satisfying. Like we start shows that we enjoy and we just give them up right. because something else comes along. And I think you're less satisfied because you're less invested in those. And I always use the example, people have heard me say it on this show, like everyone was worried about who shot JR. Right. Right. Like, and now, I feel like if it happened now, like by the time, I mean, forget about this summer, you know, off, right? right. But half the people would just not care because they're onto something else. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, you know, uh, there's definitely a lot of content and, and content has become much more commoditized. It's just like, you know, and, and frankly, um, the one place I disagree is I think there's a lot of shitty content. Um, oh, no, I, I'm I with I you. Yeah, I don't think there's a sure. lot of good content at all. And I think what's happened is that places okay. like Netflix, um, as an example, are just overpaying for whatever content if as long as it's a movie star and kind of letting it just go and so it has a lot of content but I don't think it has a lot of good content and you know when something rises to the top and it's really good everybody's talking about it and everybody's watching it and they've had a few of those which is like you know even a clock is right twice a day right a broken clock yeah yeah Um, and so inevitably if they're going to spend eight billion dollars a year and make you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different um, shows originals they're gonna be a couple that are good sure i think those couple that are really good um do get the attention and i think you know it's become part of a a social experience that didn't exist before so before it was just like you didn't talk about it like you said jay who shot jay i was just like everybody watched the show dukes yeah. of hazard we just you didn't talk about that you watched it because you just yeah, watched, it, right? watched it right but now it's actually a part of our our cultural discussion which is like um you know, oh, there's this. Have you watched the new show on Netflix? Sure. Blah blah blah. It's so yeah. good. And then that comes up and bubbles up, and people then all start watching it. And it it actually, I think, does get a massive amount of viewership. Um, maybe even more than than some of the shows we used to get because of you know worldwide syndication. Sure. Um, no question. But I actually think that what I'm seeing is the big studios, other than the IP that they own, right? Big, you know, whether it's DC or Marvel or Lucas or um, you know, kind of Star Trek or just things that fall down. I feel like they are um, feel that they have to go make, for whatever reason, things that don't compete with those movies. Mm. So it's it's just a proven statistical fact that anybody in the finance world could look at, which is that movies that are thriller, horror, um, broad comedy, uh, fantasy slash kind of like superhero and broad romance, like not depressed romance, are the movies that work, mm-hmm. right? You start getting into dramas and even musicals, which I know has have had some success this you know last year. And, sure. Um, you know, foreign language and you know, kind of weird offbeat movies. They they don't people don't want to see those. Like there's a there's a limited group of people that mm-hmm. want to see them, but mm-hmm. people don't want to see them. I'll call them the Academy Award movies, right? Mm-hmm. And so for some reason. What's happened to the studios is that they're putting out, you know, let's say they have 30 slots. They always maximize their slots. Now yeah. they're only putting out like 20 movies, 15 movies, half what they did before. Ten or eight, eight of them will which are their big franchise movies. And then they go put out eight or ten. And they're in that category of like those weird kind of dramas, offbeat things that they just, they're, they're not good. Right. You know, and when I say they're not good, 
they might be beautifully made mm -hmm. and they might be art um, mm -hmm. which you know might get award attention right. but the average consumer is not be like because there is so much content is not going to go to the theater to see it and part of the, the just time proven test is and it's you can see it with Netflix's and everybody's attempts to do these big movies if you don't have a big theatrical release, mm -hmm. it does get lost. Mm -hmm. Meaning, sure. what word of mouth on a Marvel movie or on uh, the new Star Wars or on, you know, the Joker, for example, yeah. you know, from theatrical leads to a lot of success in downstream, and yeah. it's formulaic. I can I can actually write sure. a formula to show that, um, and this is not like a guess. This is like a proven formula. When when the studios kind of looked, I think, and went, oh, well, we're not going to go put out a lot of these, you know, more action movies, mm -hmm. and we're just going to kind of stick to making our big movies and then making these other movies. It doesn't, it's not getting the buzz because they're not movies that people are going to run out to see in the box office. So right. then you go, oh, well, s streaming is killing box office. And I actually don't think that's true. I think if you look at Netflix... Well, they said they said TV was going to kill box office, right? Right, right. They said, they said, they said the DVD VHS, was going to kill. Yeah. But, but I think... You know, what's happened is Netflix has tried to go do, you know, $100 million, $200 million movies, and they got no attention. Yeah. You know, none. They came and went, right? Yeah. You know, I don't even remember the name of one. I don't know if you can, but I cannot think of one. And I know they probably made 10 movies over, maybe 20, over 100-something million that they mm. didn't put out theatrically, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that people are just losing fa like focus. They're so scared and trying to chase Netflix because people in this sure. industry follow. Of course. That they're not going. Wait a minute! If I just put out good movies in the theater, people will go, yeah. and then the rest of the revenues will follow. Um, like think about it: had the Joker not been released theatrically, yeah. you know, you wouldn't have had as much. You wouldn't have this this buzz. It wouldn't have had the. I mean, people would have gone. You know, maybe some people would have watched it and said, "Okay, it was good," but it was dark, and he just wouldn't. It, it wouldn't have the critic reviews. It wouldn't have yeah. the. To me. Um, it's the studios that are that are attempting to mm -hmm. fix something, mm -hmm. and they're making a mistake in fixing it. Mm -hmm. So how how are you bringing that thinking to like a thriller? So in thriller, um, so we've we've got a, I think a pretty unique um, opportunity in thriller because we have um, our, our audience is is primarily black, urban, mm -hmm. um, sixteen to twenty eight, mm -hmm. um, and that's not an audience that you can market. You, you can't buy that audience. They, right. they, they pick what, what yeah. is, is. And really, um, hip-hop and, and R&B and, um, and rap are, I'll call it the new pop, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's what defines culture. So we got lucky in that what, what the platform was set up for was to give um, the hip-hop, um, R&B, rap world a place to have a voice and mm -hmm. a place to outside of just, hey, I'm going to download music, to put that voice out there and, you know, kind of we created what we call social streaming, um, which, which uh, um, is, is really our, our mantra, where people can use their voice to um, kind of promote what what they feel they want to hear and see. So it's, it's a two-way street mm -hmm. between artist and, and listener. Um, I think that, uh, you know, for us, once again, we're not... We don't want to box ourselves in and just say this is all we are. So we've got a lot of plans, some of which, most of which I can't talk about. Of course, um, but you know we really see an opportunity to, um, very similarly in the music business to the movie business. You know, everybody's kind of in this 
box and thinks in a very specific way. And we see an opportunity to change that. And we also see a convergence of music and we'll call it um, uh, screened entertainment, mm -hmm. short form, long form, um, that is, is, is underexploited. And so um, we have a lot of plans to grow Triller, I think, into um, a lot more than just um, a music social streaming platform, but also, I think, a place where all of those things can converge, long form, short form, brands, branding content, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and yet do it where uh, it keeps the, the natural voice, um, given that we've kind of luckily been selected as the platform. Um, yeah. We didn't, we didn't, sure. you know, you can't, you really can't, I, I can't say that, you know, we went and targeted that and it happened. It, it's because we gave a, a very real, very raw platform. Mm -hmm. um, I think we, um, we were very fortunate that we've been now kind of selected as the go-to platform. Um, I think after today we'll have 12 of the top 12 streaming artists in the world as, as partners and investors in, wow. in the company. Nice. Um, it, it, it's really them that it's them and the fans that built mm -hmm. it, not us. We mm -hmm. gave them the tools, right. but but they used those tools to, to really, I think, give something that the industry was missing, um, which was, yeah, there's, a, there's places you can listen to music, there's places you can download music, there's um, places that you can, you know, like TikTok where you can maybe make a little short video with music. There's not a lot of places where you can um, an artist can actually go make their music using their music, um, make some form of art that's visual, mm -hmm. and in the process also have it count towards um, their own streaming, which true. obviously is how yeah. their their lifeblood. Yeah. And so by getting more people involved, it, it really everybody wins. We call it a perfect 360. The labels mm -hmm. win, the publishers win, the artists win, the audience wins. And we think the more that that grows, the more this starts applying to even longer form content and um, and other content. So you know, as a guy in his forties who uh, who you know has always worked in youth culture, you know, people ask me kind of how how do you stay in touch? How do you, you know how do you stay connected to what's happening? You know, I spent as I said a lot of years working in esports and bringing opportunities to brands and just seeing them not get it at all, right? And you could yeah. show them the numbers. I know you worked in esports. Um, you know, I showed a bunch of CMOs the numbers of you know kids involved in esports, and like they you could just tell yeah. that whether they believed or not, they didn't believe it. For sure. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I guess my question is, what what keeps you from looking at something like a trailer and just not getting it? Um. So one, I try to surround myself with people smarter than me all the time. Yeah. Um. And younger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Same here. That's, you know, that's important. In my head, I still think I'm. 20, I mean, it gets easier you know, to find younger people. Than, it does. Than well, I, I, in my head, I think I'm 24 still. Right. But I'm 44. So 45. I just turned 45. Oh, nice. So, um, uh, you know, that's one. Two is um, I learned my lesson really early on because even when I was, I don't know how old I was, maybe 32, and I remember when um, I was reading paper, or actually before I was reading the paper, someone mentioned me and said, you know, there's this thing, eSports. Like, what's eSports? You know, it's like uh, people playing video games. And, like People watch people playing video games. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, and they pay to go in. And I'm like, I, I sloughed it off of me. I was like, that's just yeah. ridiculous. Next day, I read a lot, so I pretty much try to read everything. Like, yeah, I say everything. I mean, don't sleep much, so I just read lots and lots and lots of anything sure. that's relevant. And so, I was reading the next morning, or not the next, but the next week, and there was this 
big article in the LA Times about how a stadium had sold out 50,000 seats for eSports. So called that guy back and went up and said, tell me more about that. And yeah. So I kind of learned early on the lesson that like, just because I think it sounds like ridiculous and I can't understand it. Yeah. It, I'm not the tastemaker anymore. I mean, I guess when I started the company in my 20s, I was in that, that world. Sure. But today, I'm not. Like, it's the 18 to 25 year olds that are that are making the the rel- culture relevant. And so, mm-hmm. it's just when he, making sure that when I hear an idea, I'm not like, oh, that's that just doesn't make sense. It's more saying, okay, who can help me make sense of it? Right. Um, and that's kind of with Triller. What I did is, is you know, we we looked at it and looked at what was happening. And it was like, okay. Um, I don't understand short form that much because it's not a world I grew up with, right? And I don't consume short form. Yeah. Um, but um, I know that kids are consuming short form like crazy, and this seems to be a unique form of that. Let me go bring some people that I really trust in to talk about it and see if we can take this and sure. there's a model for us to integrate into what we're doing. And um, and I think that's... I also try to read what the kids are reading, meaning mm-hmm. like, you know, the little sound bites that they're getting, mm-hmm. you know, we know that 18 to 25 year olds don't read a lot of news, but right. they get a lot of information thrown at them. Sure. So I try to put myself and say, what information has been thrown at them? So yeah. what's relevant to them? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that's really, it's key. And it's hard to do sometimes because sometimes you'll hear something and you'll just go, that is just so ridiculous. But then I remember thinking back, to the, going back to what we were first talking about, the Beastie Boys contest where my dad, I mean, concert where my dad's yeah. like, these are not musicians. Right. They have no talent. They're just running around pouring beer. And of course, Beastie Boys being one of the excellent sure. artists of all time. So, yeah. you know, it just you got to just remember that you're not. We're not. We're not the audience. We're not selling to ourselves. And yeah. I think CMOs forget that. You know, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's the that's the biggest challenge of being a marketer is that you you want to market to yourself. It's human nature. Yeah. You, well, you're thinking about what do you like, right? Yeah. And and I I I see CMOs like you do all day long, and you tell them. You know, this is where where you should be, and you know they mm-hmm. don't understand it, so they just. I think I, I've I've had a lot of debates with with CMOs of just like this is what you should be doing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. Um, what are you most excited about next? Um, well, we've got some really big things coming out for Triller. Um, we will have a new one thing I can't say is we will have be rolling out a new. Um, a lot of new features and a whole new experience on it in the next 45 to 60 days. And I cool. think it's, we're really excited about that. And we've nice. taken a lot of what we've seen the audience wants and, and giving them a lot more tools to do that with. Yeah. Um, we have some really unique things from the music world happening on Triller. Um, there's some brands that we haven't talked about that we, we own um, that will start rolling out on Triller and oh, cool. become um, big, big known media brands. Nice. Um, and so I think we're going to be starting, uh, unlike others have done, where they take their big long form, create their big Marvel movies, and then go mm-hmm. spin off. We're actually going to start building using big brand names, short form um, content Great. first, that then spins out into long form content yeah. using both trailer and very big brand names. Nice. Um, and then we're launching something called the Entertainment Stock Exchange, which we talked about a little bit. We, mm-hmm. we, had a, we announced like maybe a couple of months ago. And we'll have our first big studio movie on that, where we'll literally be IPOing a movie. 
Um, and I think that'll be coming in the so next So fans few can can buy shares in the movie. Literally shares in the movie. Yeah. It's not crypto. It's yeah. not. It's just straight. You get a stock certificate and you'll own a piece of the success or failure of that movie. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that we've been working on that for a couple of years. It's, it'll be a fully regulated, um, you know, uh, financial product. Yeah. Um, and no different than buying stock in Tesla, except mm -hmm. you're buying stock in, you know, the next movie. And we mm -hmm. think that it's going to become, we think it'll create a paradigm shift in the movie business. Yeah, um, I'd imagine. And so we're, we're really excited about that. Sounds amazing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. It's been a big uphill battle and talk about like shifting right and left and gears and exchanges yeah. and this and whether we're going to use regulation a or you know uh, direct listings or you know i mean that that was a process of just like getting on a freeway and saying okay get off on that exit no right. get back on yeah. uh, but that's coming now that's basically been it's done and it's in beta interesting can't wait to see yeah it's exciting thing it's exciting. nice um well, i have a, a little lightning round before i let you get out of here um I have one question before we get to that. Yes. Um, do, uh, do you have do you have mentors or, or where do you go for for help and inspiration? And so first, I, I always go to my dad. He's the smartest businessman I know. Probably the smartest yeah. man I know. Um, he's seventy two. He's chairing twelve companies, and every one of them is is a life changing company. But wow. he's mo much more noble than I am. These are all in like curing cancer, oh, making cool. new elements. You know. Um, and eat Alzheimer's, creating the hardest metal in the world, you know, wow. things like that. Yeah. Um, and Mike Milken's been a mentor of mine for a very long time, so I go to him cool. know, pretty much, you know, anytime I'm doing anything. Yeah. Um, and uh, and um, you know, I have a few others that are are, are key, but yeah, I, I kind of those are my 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 dad really is my go-to. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's trust there, and there's absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so uh, lightning round. What's your favorite city to travel to? Uh, Hawaii, Maui. Uh, do you have a favorite DJ? Probably DJ Khaled. Okay. Uh, what's the last great book you read? I know you're a reader. Last great book I read was um, David and Goliath. Mm. Cool. Love Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, this is not a fair question to you, but uh, what movie have you seen the most in your life? It's tough because when you make a movie, yeah, you, you see, see it, it sometimes like a couple hundred times. So, uh, uh, I'm, 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 so, so I'm going to ask you. What movie that I haven't made? Yeah, what movie that's not yours that you've seen the most in life? Um, probably True Romance okay. and The Matrix. Great movies. Yeah, those are my, probably my two favorite outside of and then is there a movie that you were involved in that had the biggest impact on you, either either the film itself or the process of getting it made? Um, probably um, biggest impact on me. I would say um, this movie called Brothers really had... The new movie? No. This was in 2010 or 11. Okay. Um, and it was a movie with it was Tobey Maguire, Natalie Portman, Jake Gyllenhaal, directed mm. by Jim Sheridan, and um, that and Fighter um, were probably the two that had the most impact. Um, and I remember so uh, Brothers was just it was a script that was in turnaround 
that I read and I used to always say I'm never going to get emotional about a movie and I just read it and it was like I was crying behind the script and I had just seen In America and yeah. uh, so I got on the phone and I said I need to find Jim Sheridan I've never met him before he yeah. directed In America find him in Ireland and I'm like I need you to fly down you got to direct this movie mm. and then um, the process of just how we got Jake and how we got Natalie and the making of the movie and re-editing it took us years and it was just a really powerful movie experience for me mm. and then Fighter similarly um, actually this is kind of a funny story so Fighter uh, was in turnaround from Paramount we got it read the script and we're like this is really dark so um, David O. Russell hadn't worked in about eight years because um, he was in what you call director's jail because mm. of what had happened on Huckabee so he had just such a good take on it we were like alright we don't care what the industry thinks. He's the guy that's doing this. Yeah. But we also said you've got like, I forgot what it was, 28 days to rewrite the script because we want modern day Rocky. Mm -hmm. And so we sat down and really rewrote the script. And um, uh, Christian Bale, obviously, we got on and um, they shot the movie and um, we got it back and we had, you know, David and I probably had we had the biggest screaming fights you could possibly imagine on a movie about like you're re-editing you're re-cutting this you're editing this we're reshooting this um, and you know when you're a director you get very focused on the art side and we sure. were looking at the commercial side but the funny part of it was we finished it and we were really really proud of it and it just, just speaks to how the industry works so originally because it was in turnaround from Paramount they had a first right of refusal just to distribute mm -hmm. theatrically and we, we had to screen them the final version, which we did, and they rejected the movie. They said, um, yeah, it's basically, it's shit. We don't want to distribute it. And we were happy because we had our own distribution. So we yeah. were like, great, no problem. Um, and then it, the buzz started to get out there that, you know, some of the studios were calling saying, what are you guys doing with the movie? And we're like, well, we're distributing on our own. And, you know, I remember um, particularly Warner's called and a woman named Pam Colano and a couple others. And this buzz started getting out that the movie was really good. Um, and we get a letter from Paramount Legal that says, uh, by the way, you have violated your right. You haven't shown us the final movie. Of course. And we're like, uh, what are you talking about? Here's the date. Here's the people we sent it to. Yeah. And they sent back and said, well, there was temp titles, so it's not final, meaning the credits. Right. And our lawyers were like, technically, they're correct. It's not the final movie. Oh, man. And so they were like the first to be like, this is crap. And then as soon as they... Yeah, of course. They saw other people loved it. They wanted to pick up, and they ended up distributing um, domestic on it. And then the second thing that happened was I was at a Golden Globe event for that, and Christian Bale, who we've done a bunch of movies together, and we, we had a pretty good relationship, he came up at the event, and he just started railing on me. He was with his wife, and he was just like, he hadn't seen the movie until, I think, that night. When for the fighter. For the fighter. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, this is not what I signed up for. The movie's shit. My role is shit. I don't understand. Wow. And his wife also started getting mad at me. And I'm like, listen... You're gonna, you're gonna win an Academy Award. You're at least gonna get nominated. Yeah. And he and his wife started to laugh, and they're like, zero chance. I'm like, okay, I'll tell you what. Here's the deal. If you get nominated for Academy Award, and or win a Golden Globe, um, you owe me a free movie. Yeah. For scale. He's like, done. He goes, what am I gonna get? I'm like, well, what do you want? And so we had made this movie called 310 to Yuma together. Yeah. And his rap gift was he loved the gun he had in it, which was a 22 rifle, old 22 rifle. So we gave that to him. Said, I get to shoot you in the right ass cheek with the <laughs> 22. I was like, done. Oh, wow. And so he ended up winning. Yeah. Of course. But it just shows you, like, how 
people nobody knows yeah. um, and those but those were just great experiences that I'll never forget that's amazing yeah um, okay what style of yours are you glad is not on social media what style of mine from your past you mean like what I wore mm-hmm. oh god there was a I had like a when I was like 14 or 15 I think I had like a I don't know if you call it a... I, I was a musician, so I had, like, a goth rocker. Like, I wore all black and John Lennon shades and okay. dyed my hair black and had, like, a spiky belt wow. and long black hair. Sure. And, you know, I think I looked a little bit like Trent Reznor or something. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, uh, we're, we're glad to have those things behind us, for sure. I'm still glad we didn't have social media then. If you could wake up tomorrow having gained any quality or ability, what would it be? Any quality or ability, wow. The ability to heal. Mm. That's big. Uh, so if I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? Is it done yet? <laughs> yeah, I get that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Dude, thanks for doing this, man. It was so much fun. Uh, I had a blast. Thank you for your questions. The and fun talking and... Um, yeah, I don't know if you ever want me back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to. Let's stay in touch, too. Let's just I'd love stay. to have you back and tell us how it all uh, unfolds. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. For sure. you got to come over and see Triller. And, yeah. Uh, you know, check it out one day. Love to. Yeah, that was Ryan Cavanaugh on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. <clears throat> I'd love to hear your thoughts, questions, ideas for other guests. Anything you want to say to me, you can reach us online. Rebel Radio Net, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. We have uh, videos of a lot of our episodes up on YouTube. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.